Good morning, Rehope family. It's our second week of having church online, and what a couple weeks that it's been. You know, last August, I spent some time figuring out what it was going to take to uh, get ourselves online as a church and, and streaming and re- researching all of that. And then our boiler broke and we moved to the basement. So we kind of put that on hold until a few weeks ago. Actually, when we moved back up to the sanctuary, we thought, right, let's get everything back in place before Easter. But here we are. <laughs> it's uh, it's a week before Easter and it's now our second week online. So uh, after a bit of scrambling, we had everything in place, all the plans in place and everything. And then it was just a bit of a scramble to actually get this all sorted and uh, and upgrading the West End a bit and then getting ourselves online. And um you know, we, we had everything in place, so it felt like God had been preparing us for this moment. It just, uh, we were maybe just not quite there, but uh, he, he was looking after us. So praise God that we were able to do all that. And, you know, this last week, uh, last week we heard from Jonathan Sherwin, our good friend, um, who, who joined us on Monday night as well. And we were talking about the historical reliability of Jesus's death and resurrection and how we can actually trust the biblical account of these things and what an encouragement that was. So if you've not already watched that, um, feel free to go back and check that out on our new Rehope Southside YouTube channel. This week, we're going to take a look at how the cross fits into the biblical story from a theological perspective. And before you get scared off by that term or thinking that you're in for a bit of a bore with kind of big words or anything like that, just remember at the core of it, theology simply means the study of God. And how exciting is that to be able to study the God who loves us so much? There's so much that we could say about the cross and what that means for us, and especially in theological terms and looking at um, you know, justification and propitiation and salvation and redemption and, and all the other shuns and ologies that you could, you know, that you maybe want to, to think about when thinking about theology. But uh, today we're going to focus on just one specific aspect, one specific characteristic of who God is, and that is God is faithful that he's trustworthy, that he, he, when he speaks, he speaks truth. And when he makes a promise to a person or to his people, then he can be trusted to fulfill that promise. Galatians 4.4 tells us that when the time has come to its completion, or at the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And what I love about this reality is to think about God sending his son Jesus at the exact right moment in history. Not only did Jesus's arrival fulfill numerous prophecies, which we're going to look at in a few minutes, but also just the the entire world context was perfectly set for his arrival. God did this in a way that was infinitely better than even preparing us to get streaming up and running in the South Side in these last couple of weeks. You know, at this point in history, the Roman Republic had been around for a few hundred years, but the Roman Empire had only just begun. But with this came incredible opportunities such as the Pax Romana or the the Peace of Rome in which you can travel throughout the entire empire and a lot of the local conflicts uh, or, or, or different things that might hinder you from, from getting around and getting, traveling through the empire. They just weren't there. It was a time of peace. Um, the, the road system, the fact that there were roads throughout the empire uh, and that you could travel relatively quickly and safely through all these places, uh, and the language, 
the fact that there is a common language, that Latin was spoken throughout the ends of the empire, that you could go and you could know the one language and actually communicate with different people, different people groups who might have come from a different background, but you could all communicate. Uh, and beyond that, Jerusalem was set at the center of the empire in a lot of ways, maybe not at the heart of it in some ways, but yet you see that Jerusalem is a link for trade, especially it connects Europe and Asia and Africa and all these places. Jerusalem sat right here so that everyone's traveling through and that the, the good news of the gospel could spread to the ends of the empire. And this was the stage that was set for Jesus's arrival, that the good news of God's kingdom could actually advance much further and much quicker than it ever could have up till this point in history. It's, a, it's incredible. So when God's talking about the, the fullness of time or the completion of time that Jesus arrived, it really was a unique moment. So in order to feel the weight of this moment, I feel like it, it will be useful to kind of take a step back and look at the Bible as a whole here and for just for a moment. You know, for those who have been in Bible read through for a while, this might be uh, this might be a bit of a recap for you, which is great. This which is part of why we uh, are in read through and we're reading through the whole Bible every year, so we get a big picture understanding of what's going on in the Bible. But before we even dig into that, let's let's look at the Bible itself. It's a collection of sixty six books written by over 40 different authors, lots of different backgrounds. There's kings, there's fishermen, there's uh, prophets, there's learned people, and there are people without much of an education who are contributing to it. It is written over 1,500 years in three different languages across three different continents, and yet there's one main character throughout all of the books, and that's Jesus, or the Messiah, the Anointed One. And there's one main theme that sticks out as well, which is God's redemption of mankind, that from the beginning in Genesis all the way through to the end in Revelation, God's redemption of mankind is at the heart of every story in the Bible. And with this, we can kind of look at the Bible as being a story of promises made and promises fulfilled, or more specifically, God's promises to his people and how he has and continues to fulfill them. One of the most incredible things to me is that long before Jesus arrives on the scene, uh, God had already communicated loads of information about where he was going to arrive, what he was going to do with his life, how he was going to die, and even the fact that he'd be raised again and what would happen after that. One of the things that I want to look at this morning is how God was using these hints or these prophecies or these promises to his people to encourage them, even from that first moment where they realized that they made a mistake. So let's look at some of these moments that God was setting the stage for Jesus's arrival, uh, his death, and his resurrection. At the start of Genesis, we read an incredible story about how God created everything out of nothing. This infinite God who had always been there, enjoying perfect love, perfect relationship for all eternity, decided to, to take a step and actually create something to be able to share his love. And so he created the universe and everything in it. He created the earth, he created the water and the land, the trees and the plants and the animals. And then he gets to the crown of his creation, he gets to humanity. And he steps in and he says, let us make man in our image. The only one, he said, let us make man in our image. Nothing else was made in his image in the way that we were. And he called it, he said it was very good. But yet, we know uh, by the time we get to Genesis 3 that things started to go downhill and there's disobedience and there's consequences for that. But yet, even in the midst of God bringing this correction to his people, he, he brings a promise of future victory and redemption. In Genesis 3.15, we read that God speaking to the serpent and saying uh, that he will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. 
even as God is kind of foreshadowing this plan of how he's going to rescue his people and how the seed of the woman is going to eventually crush the head of the serpent. Um, it's it's there, right? There's a plan. We, we know that God a, has a plan, but it's kind of like this thing in the distance that's super blurry. We can't make it out at all, but we, we see that there's something there. There's promise of this future day is there, but it's super blurry. But every time God makes another promise and brings a little bit more clarity, it's almost as if he's just kind of pulling this into focus just a little bit more each and every time, sometimes a lot, sometimes it still remains blurry. Shortly after this, we arrive at Genesis 5. And on the surface, this is probably the first of many passages about you know genealogies and all these names and so-and-so begot him and begot who begot him. And it's, it's probably not one of the most popular uh, Bible read-through shares when it comes up of like, oh, I really loved how Adam had a son and named him Seth. However, if we, if we breeze past this chapter, we might actually miss some of what God's trying to communicate to his people about this future plan. So let's look at the names here. We see Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Fair enough, there's a, there's a few names here. So let's take a look at what these names mean. And here we find uh, Adam, which means man, Seth, means appointed, Enosh, mortal, Kenan, sorrow, Mahalalel, the blessed God, that's a pretty good one, uh, Jared shall come down, Enoch, teaching, Methuselah, his death shall bring. This is a good one. Imagine what people were thinking when he was kind of on his deathbed, he was getting ready to die and so what's going to happen? But actually, interestingly enough, Methuselah dies the year of the flood at some point within that year, not long before the flood. So interesting that his death brought a significant moment in history. So moving on, Lamech, the despairing, Noah, rest and comfort. So let, let's read these again uh, a, a bit more succinctly. So we have man appointed mortal sorrow, the blessed God shall come down teaching, his death shall bring the despairing rest and comfort. It's like, what? This is Genesis 5. Right? This, is, this is early on, but we're saying man appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down teaching his death shall bring the despairing rest and comfort. It's incredible. It's as if God's just kind of taking that lens and just pulling it into more focus so we can see. We don't see the cross. You know, it, it, it's not saying this is Jesus. This is when he's going to arrive. This is what he's going to do. But we're getting hints about God's future rescue plan. And he's, he's dropping it in there for everyone to pay attention to. And this would have stood out a lot more clearly uh, in the kind of in the Jewish culture, especially in those days where they were aware of the meaning of the names and what they meant there. So moving on, we get to the start of Exodus, and Abraham's family has multiplied. They've, they've escaped to Egypt from this famine. God provided for them, and they've multiplied into an exceedingly great nation. They've filled the land. They're mighty, mighty enough and large enough to the point where the leadership in Egypt are a bit intimidated. So they put this family into slavery and cruel oppression. What ensues next is an incredible story of God delivering his people out of Egypt during what we know as Passover, which is now, it starts today, um, where the story of God decimating the Egyptian 
kingdom, really, by wiping out their, their economy, wiping out all their produce, wiping out their, uh, their leadership, wiping out even the entire army by the end of the story. It's incredible how God judges this nation. This event has become kind of the foundation for the identity and history of the Jewish people. And again, in the midst of this, God is still pointing the way. He's alluding to what he's going to do. So he instructs his people to take an unblemished lamb, a male one-year-old, and to kill it, and to take the blood and to, to spread it across the doorpost of the house, and across the lintel of the house as well, so that when the angel of death comes, that he would pass over that house where we saw the blood, and that they would be free from death in that evening, that they'd be spared from death. Uh, and for us, it's easy to look back on this now and be like, oh, this is so clear that the blood of the lamb you know, spares us from death in this way. And yet, at this time, this was God just setting things up and foreshadowing what he was going to do in this future day. So again, brings that into a little bit more focus, still a bit blurry, but a little bit more focus. So as history goes on from Passover and from the Exodus, uh, God continues to make promises to his people uh, through Moses and through their wandering in the wilderness. And in Deuteronomy 26 through 28, you see even very specific promises to his people about what would happen if they obey him and things would go well for them generally, and what would happen if they disobey. There's a, there's a variety of consequences, but ultimately God says he would remove them from the land that he's promised to them. Um, but even in that moment, he says, have hope because this will only last for a short time and then I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to restore you to this land. So this was here. This was before they even entered the land that God promised them way back in Genesis 13. He was saying, look, when these things happen, when you disobey me and I remove you from the land, there is going to come a time where I'm going to bring you back. So there's going to be hope. There's going to be this future redemption. Now, if you're following Bible read through uh, at the moment, you'll be somewhere around finishing up First Chronicles into Second Chronicles and, and kind of beyond now. So you'll know that after David, there's Solomon. And after Solomon, the kingdom kind of splits up, right? So it splits into two kingdoms, the north and the south. You've got Jeroboam in the north and took 10 tribes with him. Rehoboam in the south and Judah and took two tribes with him. And, you know, things pretty much go downhill from there. Both kingdoms just continually disobey God. And there's this downward spiral of corruption and idolatry. And it even gets to the point where the people are literally burning their children as sacrifices to demons. Things that God says never even entered his mind. Never, he never would have thought that his people should do such a thing. And, and though the southern kingdom, fair enough, they did have some of these moments of kind of reawakening and revival, but ultimately both were carried away into exile, just as was mentioned back in Deuteronomy 28. Yet here's the thing. This is probably the darkest hour of history for the Jewish people, for the sons of Israel. This downward spiral and the, the divided kingdom and ultimately into exile, the darkest moment. Yet it's here that God actually speaks the most amount of hope. He sends the most amount of prophets to speak hope about the future day where things are going to be restored. So, you know, if, if looking back at Genesis, there's these, you know, these small allusions here and there, there's the occasional promise about this future rescue plan. It's here in their darkest moment that actually God's bombarding them with all these different promises about what's going to happen in the future. And it gets, some of them get incredibly specific. So let's just look at some of what is mentioned uh, about the Messiah, about the Anointed One, and some of these specific promises here. We know even early on in the Bible, we see that the Messiah is going to be born of a woman, a human, and he would defeat the enemy. He'd come from Abraham, the tribe of Judah, house of David, 
the Lion of David and anointed by the Spirit of the Lord, be born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. You know, this is some of the, the prophecies, the promises about Jesus that we, we come across, especially around Christmas time, about his birth. Uh, that children were going to be killed after Jesus' birth. And that there would be a forerunner who would prepare his coming, which you know, John the Baptist. And that he would speak in parables, he'd be healing people, he would come into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's a bit random and specific. Um, he'd be anointed by the Spirit, he'd be tortured. In fact, if you read reading Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, especially even Zechariah, that um, the details of his suffering are pretty incredibly specific. These, these prophecies that are coming out about what Jesus actually went through on the cross hundreds of years before any of it. It's incredible. Or even more specifically, in Psalm 41 and Zechariah 11, where the Messiah is going to be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, which is going to be thrown onto the temple floor and used to buy a potter's field. That's pretty specific stuff here. Uh, and you have the, the resurrection, as mentioned, and Jesus even ascending back into heaven. With all of these promises, by the end of the Old Testament, it's as if God's just bringing things into greater focus. Now, is it still a bit blurry? Sure. But God's brought so much greater clarity into this rescue plan compared to thinking about even all the way back at Genesis 3. We know much more specifics about Jesus's birth, his death, and his resurrection. And one of the things that I find particularly mind-blowing about all this is looking at the statistical probability of Jesus or, or anyone fulfilling some of these, or let alone all of these prophecies, all these promises. You know, I'm not a statistician, so I'm going to have to defer to some of the, the work, some of the research that other people have done. Uh, but some of what we're talking about here is in a book called uh, Science Speaks by Peter Stoner. Uh, and it's incredible. Have a, have a look out for it. Uh, and what he's saying here, uh, having studied and, and done the math, is that the probability of Jesus fulfilling eight, eight of these prophecies, right? There's hundreds of them, but the probability of Jesus fulfilling eight is one times 10 to the 17th, right? One with 17 zeros at the end of it. it it's pretty unlikely. Now, to help us get our mind around that a little bit better, it, it might be helpful to have a, a little analogy or a little story here to, to help with that. So imagine that all of Great Britain is covered with two pound coins, right? In fact, every, every bit of land covered in two pound coins. In fact, it's covered in two pound coins two meters deep. We're familiar with two meters, right? That's how, how far away we're meant to be from one another at the moment. So the entirety of Great Britain is covered in two meters deep of two pound coins. And it's as if we take one of those coins and we, we mark it and we send someone out wherever he wants to uh, go out. And whenever they, they feel like it, uh, they, they stop, put the coin in the ground, mix it around however deep, however shallow they want to put it, they mix it around uh, and they come back. And now we, we take someone else, blindfold them, you know, spin them around for good measure, and we say, right, walk as far as you want to, as short as you want to. But when you stop, I want you to feel around, have a feel around and pick up the coin. And the probability of Jesus fulfilling eight of these prophecies is the same probability of that person going out and on the first try, picking up that marked coin. It's it's mind-blowing. How is that ever likely to happen? And that's only eight of these prophecies. Even more amazing is that the odds for Jesus fulfilling 48 of these prophecies is 1 times 10 to 157. 1 with 157 zeros after that. 
it's, it's, I can't even fathom it. In fact, something is often considered statistically impossible when you get to 1 times 10 to 50. And that's 1 times 10 to 157. And that's just 48 out of hundreds of prophecies. There is no way that Jesus or that anyone could have fulfilled all of these prophecies unless, of course, it was God and he was setting the stage and he was the one fulfilling all of his promises. Let's look at two more things so we can narrow down even the exact time frame that we expected the Messiah to be here. So let's look at Malachi and Daniel. Malachi 3.1, it says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So this mentions that the Messiah would come to the temple while it was still standing. And we know that in AD 70, it was destroyed by the Romans. So we know this has to happen before AD 70. And uh, Daniel 9, 24 through 27, let's have a, a quick read here. It says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. After those 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood, and until the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering, and the abomination of desolation will be on the wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. So let's take a quick look at this passage in Daniel. So applying the same interpretation principles and rules as other prophetic passages, such as Numbers 14, where you know God says that the 40 days turns into 40 years, wandering in the wilderness, the days and the years. Um, we can see here, let's take even the, the weeks here in Daniel 9, where one week is seven days. If one day equals a year, then we have a seven-year period of time per week. So we've got... Uh, 7 plus 62, 7 weeks plus 62, so we've got 69 weeks. So if we multiply that by 7, right, we get 483 years. But let's look at this, because we see the Jewish calendar is actually about 354 days, right? It's kind of solar and lunar uh, in that sense. And so uh, every few years they have, instead of a leap day, they have a leap month. Uh, and um, so if we look at that, we have 483 kind of Jewish years at this point. Um, it's kind of equivalent to about 476, 477 solar calendar years as we would know them. And so when we look at Nehemiah 2, for the first few verses there, we see Nehemiah is burdened with this idea to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And he risks his life to go to the king and ask for permission to do this. Uh, and it's in this passage that the, the ruler says, yep, go for it. And he issues a decree to go and let Nehemiah restore and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And we know that this is in the month of Nisan. We read that in Nehemiah. Uh, and this is 444 BC, right? So if we we're doing so, last of the math here, um, month of Nisan, 444 BC plus 476 years, we get the month of Nisan, AD 33. Can you remember anywhere hearing about the month of Nisan? 
Well, if you've been tracking in Bible Ritu and, and paying attention there, you might think back to Exodus 12, which is where God is about to deliver his people out of Egypt. You know, this Passover week, which starts, you know, 10th of Nisan, where the Lamb Selection Day uh, and, and carries on into the 14th of Nisan, where they slaughter this unblemished male lamb and take the blood and put it on the doorpost of their house and on the lintel of their house uh, so that the angel of death might pass over them. This is the month of Nisan, AD 33. This is exactly where we find Jesus being crucified. He rolls into town, you know, Palm Sunday today. He rolls into town and the people cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. You know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As the people are saying, right, this is the son of David. It's, it's almost as if they're selecting this, this sacrificial lamb. They're saying, right, we approve. This is the son of David. And it's only a few days later where Jesus is crucified, you know, on, on, on the day, the time that they would be sacrificing the lambs, getting ready for Passover, Jesus is crucified. His blood is being shed so that death might pass us over. It's incredible. And this is Daniel 9. This is hundreds of years before Jesus, and yet it's pointing to potentially the exact year, roughly even the, the exact time that this is going to happen to Jesus. So here's this time period. We know it's going to at least happen in, you know, around AD 32, definitely before AD 70. And it, it, it gives us this exact time window. It's like, looking at stuff like this, it brings the cross into greater clarity than ever before. It's absolutely incredible. What's the point, right? Why, why spend the time looking at even just a, a few of the promises that God made to his people throughout the ages? Well, the point is that the Bible is a story of promises made and promises fulfilled. This past week, we looked at how we can trust the, the biblical account to be historically reliable in terms of Jesus' death and his resurrection. This week, we're taking a few moments to look at how God is setting this up from the very first moment of humanity's fall and separation from God. This wasn't something that God thought about last minute and said, all right, I should probably actually do something about this. This is a bit awkward. These guys are just kind of helpless down there. I should probably do something about it. No, he had this planned out from the beginning, and he'd actually given loads of hints to encourage his people. And, and even in the darkest moment of their history, he says, hang on, Hope is coming. I'm going to give you actually more information, more encouragement about this. In fact, he even, he even waits until the exact moment in history, the completion of time, the fullness of time, to send his anointed one, to send the Messiah, to send Jesus, in a way that the good news of the kingdom of God would spread the furthest and the quickest than ever before in history. And not only this, he did it in a way that was actually impossible to have been done unless he is who he says he is, and that it was him, it was God, who intentionally fulfilled the promises that he had made to his people. Moving on from here, we're going to look at what the finished work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection actually means for us now, and how our relationship with the God who loves us so immensely and so deeply actually opens up in fantastic ways, and uh, as well as how that should actually impact our lives here and now. As we head into Holy Week this week, let's be mindful of how incredible it is, not only that Jesus existed and that he died and that he rose again, but how impossibly clearly God communicated this to his people throughout the ages and how faithful he was to fulfill these promises that he had made. This is the God that we serve. In the midst of a dark time for our country and for our world, let us take comfort knowing that this is where God's love and his faithfulness shines the brightest. He is not distant, but he is here with us, bringing comfort and peace and life and redemption to all of the brokenness in our lives and throughout the world. 
Let this reality fuel our prayers as we head into this week ahead and encourage us to truly trust that God is faithful to fulfill all that he has promised to us. So I've got a few challenges for us. Firstly, some recommended resources in case you want to read a bit further into all this. There's a few ones here. There's a short one called More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. And a, a little bit more, a bit longer, a bit more in depth here, we have The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell and his son Sean McDowell. Uh, and something else that I'd recommend as the, the foundation for theology and, and getting into any real theological studies is Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Incredible one. Two, if you're not yet in a Bible read-through group, join one. There's never been a better time to do that. So email mark.hughes at rehope.co.uk. Easy one. And lastly, reflect, right? Spend some time reflecting on God's promises to you, both personally and generally. If you find you're getting a bit stuck thinking about what they might be or finding them in the Bible, do some Googling. Just jump on there and say, God's promises. What are God's promises to me? Uh, look at that. Then book a slot in the 24-7 prayer that's happening this week. Uh, and during that time, start by just praising God, thanking God for the ways that he's fulfilled promises to you. It could be some of the ones that we looked at today, that God actually fulfilled his promises by sending Jesus, and that he died, and that he rose again, and that we have life in him and through him, and what that means for us. And cry out to God to fulfill his great promises that we're still waiting on, trusting that he is able to do so. So hopefully that's been encouraging this morning uh, and uplifting as we head into this week of prayer, as we head into Holy Week and past Palm Sunday and into everything coming up to Easter. Let us rejoice in the fact that God is faithful and trustworthy to fulfill all of his promises to us.